Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in 2 Kings 2 through 7. We're also going to do a little bit from chapter 1 of 2 Kings and a little bit from chapter 9. But the focus in this week's Come Follow Me is chapters 2 through 7 of 2 Kings. And they ask and answer a very important question. And that is, how do you recognize a true representative from God? How do you recognize an authentic prophet? Because Jesus is going to tell his disciples that one of his biggest concerns in the latter days is that people would be fooled by imitations. If you remember that in Joseph Smith Matthew, he says that in the latter days there would be many false Christs, and even the very elect according to the covenant would be deceived. So that's kind of how I would summarize one major piece of this week's Come Follow Me. It illustrates how to recognize authorized servants when a previous servant passes away. But let's go back and take a look at chapter by chapter some of the stories that occur and talk about Elisha now filling that role of Elijah's successor. So to overview these chapters, 2 Kings chapter 1 talks about Elijah's fire. Elijah is going to be attacked by servants of the king, and so he's going to summon fire to his defense. And unfortunately, some people are going to die. That's chapter one. And then chapter two is the story where Elisha and Elijah go across the river, the mantle falls. He comes back across the river and says, where's the Lord God of Elijah? And that chapter ends with the children calling Elisha bald and being eaten by the bears. And 2 Kings chapter 3 talks about this coalition. It's a military coalition of three nations. Israel, Judah, and Edom are going to invade Moab. And Moab is led by this king named Mesha. And there's a big problem in this chapter because they don't have water. As they're going through the Negev, they have this issue with water. And so the prophet steps in and things get fixed. Then in chapter 4, we're going to see two very specific Elijah stories repeated by Elisha. First, he's going to multiply a widow's oil, much like Elijah did with the widow of Zarephath. So then he's going to promise a son to a Shunammite woman, and there's going to be a little bit of tension there, and then the son's going to die, and then Elisha will bring the son back to life, again, repeating another one of Elijah's miracles. And 2 Kings chapter 5 is probably the most famous chapter. This is the story of Naaman the leper. And so Naaman is this individual that has leprosy, and he doesn't know what to do. And there's this young maiden who is a captive from Israel, and she says, oh my goodness, if you would just know the prophets in Israel, this can be fixed. And so this is a big deal. In chapter 6, Israel contends with an enemy. And the king of the Syrians says, who's for Israel? Because every time we make a decision, they know what they're doing. And they said, no, 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 that's not it. It's just that there's a prophet in Israel. So the king of Syria sends his entire army to take down that one man, the prophet. And this is where we get that famous statement to his servant, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then he strikes the Syrians with blindness, kind of in a Obi-Wan Kenobi, these are not the droids you're looking for type way, and then they end up victorious over the Syrians. And 2 Kings chapter 7 talks about the end of the siege and plenty in Israel. 
There is this prophecy by Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 7 that there'll be plenty in the land and that fine flour, a measure, can be found for one shekel. That's almost impossible because of the problem with the famine, but Elisha's prophecy was fulfilled. That's kind of the end of Come Follow Me, but we're going to touch a little bit in chapter 9 because chapter 9 tells the story of the death of Jezebel. She's the wife of Ahab, and she's this woman that wants to kill the prophets. And 2 Kings 9 is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah gave way back in 1 Kings 21. So that's a brief overview of these chapters. Now, do you see that if you pull a prophet into your life, if you respect and honor the authority of a prophet and you partner with them, all these marvelous blessings are going to come into you, like axes floating so that you can find them, and oil being multiplied, and leprosy being washed off. If you pull the prophet into your life, you receive these marvelous blessings. If you push the prophet out of your life, you have to face those consequences. And so we're going to start off in chapter 1, and we're going to watch Elijah, who's still the prophet in chapter 1, call down fire from heaven. 1 Kings chapter 1 talks about Ahaziah. Now, there's a couple of these in the Bible, so please see our chart that's attached in the show notes to see which one we're talking about. But just know that in this chapter, we're talking about the king that ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. There's another one in Judah. We're not talking about that one. This king, Ahaziah, in this chapter, he is the son of Ahab. So he's taking over, and Ahab's no longer with us. He falls out a window, and then in the third verse of 2 Kings 1, he inquires of Baal-zebub, and that's a god of Ekron. This appears to mean Lord of the Flies, and in the New Testament, Baal-zebub, or as we'll say, Beelzebub, is demoted from a pagan deity, as it was seen in the Old Testament, to a demon. A plausible proposal is that the original name, we think, was Baal-zebul, which means Baal the prince, and that the author of this text is basically playing word games and basically making a joke, saying that this god, instead of being the prince or Baal the prince, is saying, this is Lord of the Flies. What I see happening here in this chapter is the author's kind of having some fun and doing some puns. And so we read in verse 4, Now therefore thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from the bed on which thou art gone up, but thou shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. You see, verse 4 has to do with this king that falls down. He falls out of this lattice, and he wants to know if he's going to arise. And verse 4, Elijah comes to him and says, you know what you should do? Go ask your pagan God, because frankly, verse 4, you surely will die. Well, the king doesn't like this. So he sends guys to go catch Elijah and kill him. Go to verse 9. The king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on top of a hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. He wants you to come down. Verse 10, Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So they sent up another captain of 50 and those guys get taken. And then there's another captain of 50 that comes up and Elijah shows him mercy. Elijah pities the third captain of 50 and he tells him of Ahaziah's upcoming death. 
That's 2 Kings 1, 13 through 16. There's a lot happening here with the number 50. If you remember in 1 Nephi, when Nephi goes to get the plates, his brothers say, we can't get them because Laban is a mighty man. And then they say, essentially, he can command 50. I think that idea has something to do with how the ancients viewed conflict and how the ancients viewed power. I geek out extensively in the show notes on this. We quote some great scholars. But to be short in speaking, that number 50 has to do with the way these stories were presented. My take on this chapter, as well as Elijah and his ascent into heaven, that Elijah has, quote, 50 sons of the prophets that accompany him all the way down to Jericho, and then he ascends to the highest. In the ancient world, that number 50 had to do with the chorus that sang the songs of the hero. And that number 50 is tied into lots of different stories. I mean, there's Gilgamesh in antiquity in Samaria, but there's also Jason and the Argonauts and his 50 Argonauts. Those are the guys that are with him on the boat. That number 50 was the chorus that told the story. And if you've ever watched a really good musical, it's the chorus that drives the story along. One of my favorites is Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And as you watch the story of Joseph unfold, when the narrator stands up and starts to sing so beautifully, the narrator invites the spirit. I mean, I've had really neat spiritual experiences watching really talented singers teach the story of Joseph. Well, anciently, that would have been done with the chorus of 50. But back to our story here, these 50 men that come to take him, we have this pun. You see, Elijah presents himself as a Ish Elohim. That just literally means man of God. But then he calls down Esh Elohim, which is the fire of God. The man of God is calling down the fire of God to defend the man of God. And so God brings fire down on these people that want to take Elijah and kill him. And Elijah is defended. Now, Bryce, when Jesus and his apostles come across people that are enemies to Jesus, some of the apostles, I think they take this stuff literally and they say, hey, we should call down fire of God. Yeah. So in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is rejected at a Samaritan village, James and John say, hey, let's do like Elijah did and call down fire from heaven, consume them. It's one thing when the Lord flexes his muscles to show that he is with Elijah. It's another thing for us to demand that God flex his muscles in retaliation to someone who's offended us. And the Savior says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the spirit you're talking of. And Jesus just simply went to a different village. But this is the story that James and John are thinking about when they quote that to Jesus. Should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? So I think that's an illustration of all of these Old Testament stories have to be kept in balance. They have to be understood in the context in which they were presented and not taken out of that context, or else they could actually harm us spiritually. And I think that's what James and John were doing, is they were taking it out of that context and saying, well, it applies here when it really didn't. So as a general rule, I would encourage everyone to be very careful with Old Testament stories and make sure we keep them true to the context in which they were given. You know, Bryce, when I was watching The Chosen the other day, I love the way this story was portrayed, where James and John are with Jesus, and they're in Samaria, the enemies to the Jews, and some of the Samaritans, I, if I remember right from watching The Chosen, they either spit at the apostles or they hit him with a couple stones, and James and John look to Jesus and say, Let's call down fire of heaven and get him. And I love the way the chosen portrays Jesus, where he just smiles and says, 
hey guys, that's not what we're here for. We're not really here for that. We're here to preach a different message. So while I really appreciate 2 Kings 1, and I think it's a great story, I certainly would never encourage a missionary or anyone to pray that their enemies be destroyed. If we understand the context in which these stories are told, I think it would really help. So with that, we're going to go into chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the story of the mantle being passed from Elijah to Elisha. Look at the places where they go. They go from Gilgal in verse 1 of chapter 2, and then they go to Bethel, that's house of God. Then they go to Jericho, verse 4. Jericho is 815 feet below sea level, and they cross over the Jordan. If you look in verse 6 and 7, they're at the Jordan. They're crossing over on dry ground. This is at the lowest point, and it's at this point, at least from my reading, that there's this ascent. Think about Jesus. We read this in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that he descends to the lowest point so that he might ascend to the highest point. So I think one of the ways we read this is the story of the mantle being passed from Elijah to Elisha. I see this also as Elijah as a type of Christ. Interestingly enough, Jesus is baptized at Bethabara, where the Jordan River dumps into the Dead Sea, and that may be the lowest freshwater point on the planet. And so... When we see this through the lens of geography, I think there might be some really neat lessons here. Yeah. So the very end of chapter two is this story about some children who mock the prophet and call him a bald man. He's bald. And then Elisha says something, and then some bears come out and attack the children. And it seems like a bizarre story. But bear with the symbolism for a minute, because I think there's some wonderful symbolism here. They call Elisha bald. He's uncovered, as if he's lost his covering, his covering of the atonement, his covering of authority. The word atonement comes from the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover. The atonement literally translated means a covering. And you remember that Adam and Eve, when they finally came forward to the Father, they were covered in coats of skins. They were authoritatively covered. So to call a prophet a bald man symbolically is saying, you don't have divine authority. You have lost your authority. You are not covered by the atonement. And I think that symbolically is why they were destroyed, that the bears of the world consumed them because they rejected a prophet. They claimed that a prophet was uncovered. The priests of Noah will do the same thing with Abinadi. They will claim that he is an uncovered prophet. And then you see exactly what happens to them. So the question for all of us in our lives is, how do you recognize a true, authentic representative of Heavenly Father? Those of you who have gone to divine places know that that is a key question. Who are true representatives and who are not? And who are you going to listen to and take instruction from? So that seems to be kind of the question that we're going to answer with Elisha. So let's go to the story about his mantle. So we've got an established prophet. Elijah was kind of that well-established prophet. He took out the priests of Baal. He called down fire from heaven. But now Elijah needs to leave. He's come to the end of his ministry. So he takes Elisha with him across the Jordan River. And on the way out of town, Elijah takes his mantle and he parts the water. 
Elijah's final miracle was the parting of the water as they cross over on dry ground to get on the other side. And then Elijah's going to be translated so that he can appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and give keys to Peter, James, and John. He can't die, so he has to be translated. He's taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Talk about the coolest way to leave this planet I've ever seen. He's taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. But as he does so, his cloak or his mantle falls to the ground, and Elisha picks it up. I'm in verse 13 of chapter 2. Elisha took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, here is the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of Moses? Where is the Lord God of Peter? Where is the Lord God of Joseph Smith? Anytime there's been an established prophet that's gone, that's the question. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now, notice what he did. Elisha took the mantle, asked that question, and then smote the water, and it parted. Now, do you see what he's doing? One of the best ways to recognize divine authority being passed from one authorized servant to another is this idea of being wrapped in the mantle of that previous prophet. This is where that symbolism comes from. We always talk about a prophet's mantle. It comes from this story of Elijah and Elisha, that Elisha wraps himself in Elijah's mantle. He repeats the same miracle as if to say, I am the authorized successor to Elijah. I'm going to repeat his miracles. And if you look over the next several chapters, he's going to do almost the same things that Elijah did. For example, in chapter 4, he multiplies the oil of a widow woman, just like Elijah did in Zarephath. This is an important thing that I think isn't directly stated in the text. It's just implied. It's inviting us to interpret the text. And on another level, Jesus will do some of the same things that Elisha is doing because Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king. So a brief list, if you want to look at this, and these are all right in our Come Follow Me chapters. I mean, this is golden stuff. In 2 Kings 2, verses 13 and 14, we read that Elisha is an enemy of the king. In the same chapter, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he provides abundant water. And then in the fourth chapter, in the first seven verses, Elisha provides abundant oil from this vessel. He that multiplies just, a widow's oil, right? It right? just doesn't run out of oil. Just he, like Elijah did. Exactly. He also brings back the dead to life. There's a woman who has a son, and the son has died, and Gehazi tries to bring this dead individual to life, but he cannot. And so Elisha goes in 2 Kings 4, 18 through 37, and brings back the dead to life. And then in the fourth chapter, right after that, Second uh, Kings 4, 42 through 44, Elisha is able to feed a hundred people with a small number of barley cakes. He also cures a leper of his leprosy in the fifth chapter. We'll talk about that when we get to Naaman. And then finally, in the sixth chapter, Elisha finds things that are lost. And if there's anybody who finds lost things in the Gospels, it's Jesus. 
And so I see Elisha as a type of Christ, but I also see Elisha fulfilling the things that Elijah did. But I would also add, Elisha is also doing many of the things that Moses did. Yeah, that's the idea is Elisha is picking up the mantle of Elijah and Moses and wrapping himself in that mantle. And Jesus will do the same thing. Jesus will multiply bread. Jesus will walk on water like Moses did. Jesus will raise the son of a widowed woman, the widow of Nain, whose son dies and Jesus brings him back to life. And then Jesus is the son of a widow woman who comes back to life. Jesus is taking that mantle of Elijah that the Jews loved. They all loved Moses and they all loved Elijah. And he's picking up that mantle and he's wrapping himself in that mantle and saying, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the answer now in Elisha's case is it's right here with Elisha. In the case of the Jews in the New Testament, it's it's right here with Jesus. A wonderful example in Latter-day Saint history is after Joseph Smith was killed, and there's a whole lot of controversy about who should lead the church. At that famous August 8, 1844 meeting, where Brigham Young stands up to speak, and then suddenly it wasn't Brigham that they were hearing. It was Joseph's voice. So many people testified that day, if I didn't know better, I would have said that was Joseph Smith speaking. And it's as if the Lord was just wrapping Brigham Young with the mantle of Joseph Smith and saying, where is the Lord God of Joseph Smith? Well, it's right here with Brigham Young. And for many saints, that's how they knew. That was just kind of the manifestation to them that the mantle of Joseph Smith had fallen onto Brigham Young. And I don't know if you've had personal experiences with that, but let me just share one of my own personal ones. I was a teenager when President Kimball was the prophet. He was our beloved prophet, and we just loved him. I'll never forget the day where I heard on the radio in the car that he had passed away. It was so devastating to me to lose that prophet of your childhood. Ezra Taft Benson just didn't strike me as the same type of loving character that I'd always come to love President Kimball. Well, for my 19th birthday, my bishop gave me his ticket to conference. And I was there on a Saturday morning in the tabernacle, and I happened to be seated where I could look down into the hallway where the prophet entered the tabernacle. So I could see President Benson walking down that hallway before anyone else knew and stood up to receive him. And I just had a brief moment where I was staring at Ezra Taft Benson, and in that moment, the mantle of Spencer W. Kimball fell on him in a majestic, wonderful way. And I knew that Ezra Taft Benson was my prophet. And from that moment on, I loved him. And I'm so grateful that Ezra Taft Benson signed my mission call because all the love that I had for Spencer W. Kimball was transferred to Ezra Taft Benson in that whole symbolism of the mantle falling. It was as if the Lord was saying to me, Bryce, where is the Lord God of Spencer W. Kimball? And then he picked up that mantle and he wrapped it around Ezra Taft Benson and he said, it's right here. This is my authorized servant. This is from Elder George Q. Cannon. He said, the same spirit of revelation that Moses had has rested upon the men that have held the keys of this kingdom, whether it was during present Brigham Young's life or at the present time. 
That same spirit of revelation rests upon him who holds the presidency as senior apostle in the midst of the people of God. The apostles of this church have all the authority and the keys, and it is within the preview of their office and calling to have all the spirit of revelation necessary to lead this people into the presence of the Lamb in the celestial kingdom of our God. I think what Elder George Cucanet is essentially saying is they have the keys, they have the authority. I like to look at this as well when we look at this through the lens of church history that Bryce just mentioned with Brigham Young. The individual groups that splintered away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they still believed in Jesus and many of them held to the Book of Mormon. But over the course of the last 200 years, if you look at the specifics of their doctrine, much of it has been watered down. And in my estimation, they do not have the same spirit that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has in the sense that they don't hold to the keys. They don't follow the presidency. And in so doing, they may have the same texts, but they don't teach the same doctrine. And I think this is also a way, if we really want to go into the weeds and see how did the apostasy happen in early Christianity, all we have to do is look at church history. There are groups that have the same texts that we have, but their doctrine has changed. And so I think that's important. I think seeing that this chapter of the mantle, and then talking about the authority of the presiding officers of the church and seeing how it is a reality today is important. If you watch for it, you'll always be able to identify the mantle and where it goes. It's a mantle of power. It's a mantle of authority. And if you listen to the whisperings inside of you, the Lord will let you know when that mantle passes. So when when you don't sense that the mantle has passed on to someone, that there's a missing authority, that there's missing power here, it can be assigned to you that that is not an authorized servant that's taking over. Now, when it comes to why Elijah was translated, I'm not going to read the whole quote. It's in the show notes. But basically, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith gave great reasons as to why Elijah was translated. And according to his understanding of the text, Elijah had to have a tangible body to restore keys upon the heads of Peter, James, and John. That bestowal of keys to those people, Peter, James, and John, happened before the resurrection. And so according to President Smith, that's why he had to have a body, and that's why it was translated. That truth was also why Moses was translated. Those two had to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and give keys to Peter. So now we have chapter 3, and again, following that same thing, now watch what happens when kings seek out a prophet and seek his counsel and try to pull him in. It's that same idea. If we pull the authority of the prophet into our life, watch the blessings that come. That's chapter 3. So a little bit of history with chapter 3. Mesha, who's the king of Moab, it says, rebels against Israel. That's 2 Kings 3, 4, and 5. Mesha is supposed to pay tribute to Israel, as David had forced Moab into vassal status. At some point during the reign of Basha, and Basha is like 900 to 877 BC, Moab was able to drive out their tax collectors or their Israeli overlords. And then Omri, the father of Ahab, historically, he was able then to subjugate Moab again and reinstate tribute. And so there's this struggle between Moab and the kingdom of Judah. And I get it. You know, you don't want to pay tribute to your enemies. Why? We're talking about a tax. 
and that tax is no fun to pay. And so they're vassals to Judah and they're paying it and they're like, we don't like paying this. So there's this back and forth struggle where they don't want to pay it. And so this chapter, once again, is them not paying it. And so Judah and Israel join forces. And this is rare. This doesn't happen all the time. And they also pull in the kingdom of Edom. Now we put this in the slide. You can see it. But essentially, Israel is in the north, Judah's in the south, and Edom is even further south. And Moab is just east of the Dead Sea. So that's kind of the geography. So these three kingdoms are going to attack Moab. Now this chapter, let me just set this up. These three kingdoms don't cross over the Jordan through Jericho and go into Moab, what I would call the easy way to go in. They swing all the way around south and they go through the Negev, which is in the heart of Edom, and they come up from the south to attack Moab from the south. And the reason why we think they do this is because they want to avoid the armies of Moab. You see, Moab knows where it's easy to attack them, so they put all their armies north and west of their kingdom kind of as a line of defense. And so these three nations, to avoid the armies, swing around, but now there's a problem. They're going through the Negev Desert, and there's just not enough water. So that's the basic premise of this whole chapter and what's being set up. These three nations cry out for help, and the prophet shows them a way that they can have water. Luckily, they've made an alliance with the king of Judah. Now, Judah doesn't have all righteous kings, but Jehoshaphat was one of them. Jehoshaphat was a righteous king of Judah, and he happens to be one of the threesome. And that's going to make a major difference because it will be Jehoshaphat who will say, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And I think that's important in this story that it was the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, who says, we need the Lord's help and we've got to pull in the prophet. And as soon as they do that, Elisha has the answer. Elisha reveals to them the answer to what's going to happen with the water shortage. I like that. I think that's important because when Jehoram talks to him, Elisha responds negatively. Look in verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. In other words, you go talk to your pagan gods, Jehoram. Now remember, Jehoram's the son of Ahab. So he's basically denigrating Ahab and Jezebel. And he's saying, you go to your gods, your pagan gods, and see what they can do for you. So I like that, Bryce. I like that you're calling this out, that Jehoshaphat gets it. He gets who the good guys are. And so these three kingdoms are able to take Moab. If you go to verse 24, the Israelites rose up and they smote the Moabites. Now, if you're reading this and you're wondering about some of these tricky passages, there's a very strange passage at the end of the third chapter. And this is verse 26 and 27. And I just want to make a note of this and just say, there's a lot going on here. I'm going to be brief, but we're going to put it in the show notes for you. So here it is. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, in other words, he's losing, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even to the king of Edom, but they could not. So he tried one final push, doesn't work. Then verse 27, then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. Now, who's he offering him to? He's certainly not offering his son to Jehovah. He He's offering his son to Chemosh. This is the sun god. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense in the English, but the text reads in that verse, verse 27, that there was great ketzef against Israel. And what that means 
is that there was trouble or indignation against Israel, that the king of the Moabites, in sacrificing his son to Chemosh, was successful. The author of 2 Kings is acknowledging that Moab has a god and Israel has a god, and the god of the Moabites was able to grant the king of Moab to escape because he offered his son as a burnt offering. And it's just acknowledging this. It's this strange world. And what is the strange world of the Hebrew Bible kind of showing us? It's this idea of monolatry, that there are multiple gods, but to you, Israel, there is one God, and that is Jehovah. And he is jealous of these other gods and don't worship them. And in this story, we have the king of Moab offering his son, and the authors of the text are acknowledging that it works. If you want to know more, like we said, there's lots in the show notes to to illustrate this and to explain this strange world of the Hebrew Bible. But I think if we see that and just acknowledge it there, and don't try to fix it, don't try to make it make sense, but just acknowledge that that's how the Hebrew Bible sees the world. Then when we read the New Testament, what we'll see is this. The authors of the New Testament are also going to say that there is these other powers, that these other powers exist. But what they do is they turn them into demons. And so Beelzebub becomes a demon. But in Kings, it's this pagan god. And so I think this is interesting because it helps us see how the authors of the Hebrew Bible saw the world. And I think if we lived back then, we might see it that way too. We see it differently because we stand on the shoulders of great men and women of faith over centuries that have helped us see things differently. And frankly, that's why I like to read the Book of Mormon and use it as a lens to view the Hebrew Bible, because as Latter-day Saints, we stand in a really awesome position where we have modern revelation to help us see the Bible with greater clarity. But it comes back to that question, who is the authorized servant? Who can and does speak for God? And that tension over that question has existed from the very beginning of time. So now we get into chapter four, where we just get to see the blessings that come into your life if you partner with a prophet, if you bring a prophet and his authority into that life, what happens? So we start with this widow woman. Now, she is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, and he's passed away. So she's left a widow facing a lot of debt. She says in verse one, thy servant, my husband is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to the bondsman. So she's facing an enormous debt that she can't pay. And then I love where Elisha goes, because this is where Jesus goes so many times in our lives, where we turn to the Savior and say, I need help. I don't have enough. I need your divine help. He turns right around and says, well, what do you have? You see this so many times in the New Testament. When he feeds the 5,000, well, what do you have? When he feeds the 4,000, well, what have ye? What do you have? And it's kind of like a young person heading out onto a mission saying, I don't know that I can be a very effective missionary. I need a lot of help. Lord, you're going to have to help me perform this miracle. And he turns it right around and says, well, what do you have? And I love that. One of the ways we unlock the power of heaven is by doing all that we can do. So before we ask for heaven's help, we ought to examine ourselves and say, what can I do? What do I have? Like Nephi, who has to build a boat and says, I have no idea how to build a boat. Can I start with building tools? Can you help me build the tools? Because that's something I can do. 
And so he turns right around and he says to the widow woman, what do you have in your house? And she says, I only have a pot of oil. Now watch what God can do with the limited things that you do have. So then he says, okay, go borrow every empty vessel you can get your hands on. Borrow not a few, and then start pouring your oil into those empty containers. So she does just that, and she starts pouring the oil into these containers, and according to the scripture, the oil stayed, which meant she poured it into this container, and then she poured it into this container, and then she poured it into this container, and the oil was multiplied. Now, first of all, this is a mantle moment where Elisha is reminding us that he is the prophet that has taken Elijah's place because this is the very miracle that kind of is Elijah's signature miracle with the widow of Zarephath. But the other point I want to make is this is exactly how God operates in our lives. His miracles are not necessarily the mighty things that we often are looking for. It's just the small multiplication of blessings that make a difference. And pretty soon this woman is left with multiple vessels full of oil. The prophet then says, go and sell the oil and pay the debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. And so not only does he give her enough to pay the debt, but he gives her an abundance. And I love that story. It's such a symbol of God in our lives. Now, Jesus is going to do the same thing with the bread and the small fishes when he feeds the 5,000. What do you have? Well, all I have, all I am, Lord, is a barley loaf of bread. Well, that's good enough for me. And he lays his hands upon it and he multiplies it and he fills the multitude. In fact, they gather up 12 baskets of what they couldn't eat. So typical of God. If we are willing to give him what we do have, he multiplies it and gives us an abundance. You know, Bryce, I really see this with the temple. Anciently, they would eat in the presence of the king, and he would feed them on the last day. And Jesus does this in Third Nephi. And this idea that we come to God with all we have, and the Lord says, are you willing to give me all, sacrifice all? And we say, yes, we'll sacrifice all. He feeds us and makes us more than what we could be. In fact, I look at this idea of the eating. When we eat the bread and water of the sacrament, part of him becomes part of us, and we're in partnership. And that's really what I see in the idea of even eating together. When we eat together, we have communion. And in that communion, there's this synergy. Yeah. The rest of chapter four is, again, Elisha raising the son of a widow woman, just like Elijah did. Elijah, the very widow of Zarephath, whose oil he multiplied, her son died, and he is brought back to life by the prophet. And so once again, wrapping in that mantle, Elisha's going to do the same thing. But do you see it pointing to Jesus? Jesus is the son of a widow who is raised from the dead. There's always that reference to the Savior. And this is, interestingly enough, part of the continuation of what Gehazi tries to do. He tries in verses 25 through 31 of 2 Kings 4 to raise the child, but cannot. He's unable to do it. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 31, it says, the child is not awakened. 
And then Elisha comes. And then we read in verse 34 that he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. And then verse 35 tells us that he sneezes seven times. And then he says, take up thy son in verse 36. And she does. She takes up her son and she went out. And then Elisha comes to Gilgal, this image of a circle. What do we have here? We have an embrace, we have a circle, and we have this resurrection image where this person who is dead is made alive. What I see here is this is a sacred embrace that's associated with sacred things and the resurrection. For about eight pages in one of Hugh Nibley's books, and this book is called The Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri and Egyptian Endowment, he talks about this symbol and how it's tied into the temple and the, what, what he's going to call the coronation embrace, where an individual is made a king. And I find this fascinating. I see this as a sacred embrace between God and the sons of God or the daughters of God, where he embraces them, brings them into his presence, and makes them resurrected beings. In fact, that idea of an embrace is tied into atonement. Atonement means to be covered. Well, that word to be covered can also be read as an embrace. So another way to read 2 Kings 4 is Elisha was a tool in the hands of God to put the atonement on this dead child. I think it's a beautiful image. And this next chapter, I think, Bryce, don't you think this chapter is probably the most famous of these chapters? Yeah, perhaps even one of the most famous Old Testament stories in general. And there's a whole lot going on. There's a little bit of the Abrahamic covenant. There's a a whole lot on faith. There's a whole lot about how God's blessings happen in our lives. There's prophets. It's a wonderful story. So Naaman has leprosy, and all of his might can't make it go away. Here's a man that can command armies and mountains move, so to speak, but he cannot remove the leprosy in his own body. But they've taken a little maid, faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant is about making the Lord's name known in a strange land? And that's exactly what she does. She said, would God that my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And How many times does the testimony of a little maiden like that completely turn around someone's life? I wish you were in Samaria because a prophet could heal you. Well, the idea of being healed is overwhelming. So Naaman gets permission from the king to go to the prophet. The king of Syria sends a letter to king of Israel saying, please heal this man of his leprosy. And the king says, well, I, didn't, I can't do that. Who am I? Verse 7, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover this man from leprosy? I have no ability to do that, which is a beautiful little moment. The king of Israel recognizes I have no ability to cure the leprosy. The king of Syria can't cure the leprosy. Naaman, with all his army, can't cure the leprosy. Well, when Elisha finds out about it, he says, send him to me, and that you may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So here comes Naaman, and he's brought with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiment, because that's what he thought the cost of a miracle was. But what he's going to find out is that the cost of a miracle is obedience. 
Faithfulness to the commandments will bring the miracle into your life, not 6,000 pieces of gold. So he shows up at Elisha's door. And the first thing that kind of strikes him as odd is Elisha doesn't even come out and dignify him with his presence. He sends a messenger. And the messenger says, here's the command. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall come again to thee, and you will be clean. So Naaman, first of all, it wasn't Elisha that came out. He sent a servant, and then he gave me this silly task. And he's, he's, he's enraged a little bit. Verse 11, Naaman was wroth and went away, saying, Behold, I, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leprosy. And by the way, what a stupid request. Don't we have better rivers in Damascus than the Jordan River here? Quite often we begin to second-guess commandments of God. We second-guess His invitation for blessings. And we second-guess, that's how a miracle is going to come into my life? That's what's going to bring the blessings into my life? Paying my tithing? Are you kidding me? You want me to solve my financial problems by giving more money up? When I was on my mission, we were teaching this individual who came from a Christian tradition where there's a lot more, shall we say, finery associated with their taking of the sacrament, what he would call the Eucharist. We took him to church. And after sacrament, I said, what did you think? And he said, that was just so simple. It wasn't what I expected. And he said, how can the church of God be so simple? That was like a direct quote. Yeah. And it made me think of this. Yep. Because it's not this big, glorious, grand thing like I expected it to be. So luckily he has a servant that says to him, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much rather than when he saith, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River. Now, here's where the text doesn't tell the story that you have to see. There's a great message here. The command was dip seven times and then your flesh will become clean. So I would imagine when he went down the first time and came up, wouldn't you look at your flesh and expect some type of a change? And there was none. Now there's the moment. Do you get out of the river after one wash because nothing changed? I think there's a lot of one-dip members of the church. They try it once, nothing changed, and so they get out of the river and they go home. A lot of blessings that come in the church are seven-dip blessings, and they come only after great effort. And they, you may not see the blessings after one dip. He goes down and washes himself one time and not a single change to his leprosy. At least that's the assumption here. But he doesn't get out of the river. He washes again. No change. Now, at what point is your faith tested? Would you start to question after six dips and there's no change to your leprosy? Are you a six-dip member of the church where you came oh so close to the blessing and then you quit right before the blessing was going to come? You made it six dips, but you just couldn't make it to the very end. It was only when he obeyed the commandment 
seven times. Now, do you see that, that reference to complete or whole or perfect? When you follow the instructions, and he goes down the seventh time, and then when he comes up, the leprosy is gone. Some blessings are seven-dip blessings, and they require considerable effort. And you may not see a lot of changes after one dip. In fact, you may not see a lot of changes after six dips. But you hang on. Far too many people lose a blessing in the final moments. Had they just been faithful for one more wash, then the cleansing would have come. I think that's indicative of a lot of Heavenly Father's blessings. It takes an element of holding on and trusting. Noah got on the boat seven days before the rain. So what would you do on day six? Would you get off the boat? Would you get out of the river? I think you could have some marvelous discussions this week with people that you love about what are some of the seven dip blessings that we might lose if we walk out of the river too soon. And what is it that we need to do to claim those blessings and not give them up either because I didn't see change immediately or I just walked away a little bit too soon? Well, he dipped seven times, his leprosy is gone, and now he's clean. He wants to thank Elisha. So he offers him the reward. And Elisha says, nope, that's not how we do it. He says in verse 15, please take a blessing of thy servant. Verse 16, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. That's not why I do it. That's not why I serve. That's not how it works. I didn't bless you. I didn't do this so that I received from you. I'm just simply a servant of the Lord. But Elisha's servant sees an opportunity here. So he runs after Naaman and says, oh, um, my Lord has changed his mind. He's got some visitors, and he really could use some of that gold and silver. Could he have a talent? And Naaman's more than grateful. Here, take it. Take it. And so there's this beautiful little scene where Gehazi, the servant, comes back and faces Elisha. And as he walks in, Elisha says, where are you coming from, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, oh, I didn't go anywhere. And then he says in verse 26, went not mine heart with thee? When the man turned again from the chariot to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servant and maid servant? It's kind of like Nephi saying, the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if he labors for money, he will perish. And then he says, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave unto thee. And Gehazi now becomes the leper. Kind of a fitting end to, do you want the things of God? Do you want the blessing of the prophet? Or do you want the things of the world? Naaman, okay, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll dip seven times. I will obey with exactness. And he receives a blessing. Gehazi, who is not willing to follow the Lord's standard, but kind of wants the earthly blessings that can come, ends up with that same leprosy. Just kind of an interesting foil there in chapter 5. It is, Bryce. Before we leave, just a couple interesting cultural bits. If you read the chapter and you're wondering what's going on here, 
there's this strange bit going on in verses 15 through 19 where Naaman offers Elisha gifts, but they're refused. But then he makes this strange request. Look in verse 17. Naaman says, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Verse 17 is really interesting to me because it seems to indicate this idea that Yahweh, or Jehovah as we call him in the church, could only be worshipped within the confines of the land of Israel. So his request is, can I take some of this soil where this miracle took place, take it with me, and then sacrifice to God on this soil? Now, the question's not really answered. Like, we don't know what happens here, but that's his request. And then he makes this statement in verse 18, where he says that he leaneth on my hand. Look in verse 18. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon, now that's the storm god Hadad, when my master goes into that temple of this other god to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. It seems to indicate that Naaman realizes, listen, I'm the right-hand man of the king. He's going to lean on my hand. In other words, he's going to say to me, come with me and worship this God. But I'm in this really tough position, Elisha, because I know who the real God is. Will I be pardoned? Is that okay? Like, what do I do? And notice what Elisha says. He says, go in peace. Now, later Christian authors are going to work on this. Paul's going to have this problem where he's working with people that come from all these different traditions. And Paul's going to try to help them navigate this complexity of living in a world with multiple gods. And we still see this today. We see all kinds of things today where people have other gods. In fact, President Kimball gave a great talk called The False Gods We Worship, and where today we don't worship Rimnon or other gods of these people, but we worship material things. And we need to put God first and be in the world, but not of the world. But the chapter doesn't really answer the question. But I think right away, we learn a couple things culturally. Naaman is converted. He realizes that Elisha's God is God. But then he says, hey, can I take some burden of earth with me? That's a big question that the writers of the Bible have. Are the covenant promises tied to the dirt? tied to the land. You remember, the Samaritan woman will say to Jesus, hey, you worship in Jerusalem at that temple, but we worship where Jacob worshiped at this well. And it was all about where you worship. And Jesus is going to turn that around and say, look, there will come a day when neither at Jerusalem nor in this mountain will you worship the Father. It's not where, but how. But you can see that was a prevailing thought among even the New Testament people, that you've got to worship in the right place. Definitely. I mean, that's definitely happening here. So this next chapter, we read about these sons of the prophets, and they say to Elisha, the place where we dwell is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and make thence every man a beam, and let us make a place where we may dwell. And he answered, go ye. And so they do. So there's this Elisha giving leave of the young prophets to enlarge their living space. They take leave of Elisha. In the midst of this, we have this story of a man who borrows an axe head and he loses it. And I'm just going to read it. Let's go to verse five. As one was felling a beam, the axe head 
fell into the water, and he cried, Alas, master, for it was borrowed, it meaning the axe head. And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place. And he cut down a stick and cast it thither, and the iron did swim. So somehow this axe head falls into water, and it's gone. He can't find it. But Elisha uses his prophetic powers and makes the iron float. Now, we all know iron doesn't float. An axe head doesn't float. That's just not how it works. But in this reference, we have this happening. And so this is Orson Pratt, and this is what he said. That same being who gave the law to materials by which they act can counteract the law. He did so in the instance when Elisha caused an iron to swim. I think there's a message here of having hope in God when there seems to be no hope. The idea of recovering an axe head in a river, and remember, Jordan River is not clean. It is dirty. There's just no way you're going to recover that axe head. It's hopeless. It's doomed. But with God, all things are possible. When their back was against the Red Sea and they didn't see a way to escape, the Lord opened up a way. When you've lost something and you don't see any possible way of getting it back, the Lord makes it possible to get back. Have faith in that God. In President Nelson's recent talk where he's talked about having spiritual momentum, one of the ways we do that is we expect miracles in our lives. We expect and look for the Lord to do these types of things, to help us open a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. And that's why I love this story. The thought of ever getting an axe head back that fell into the Jordan River, I'm never going to get it back. But the Lord says, I can help. I can make that possible. And talk about a tender mercy. That's a tender mercy that they'll never forget. And we need to remember that that's the God that we worship, the one that can make axe heads float. It's kind of just mentioned in passing, and then we go on. Uh, In the next bit in this chapter, verses 8 through 12, Elisha reveals to the king of Israel the plans of the Syrian king. The Syrian king seems to be plotting against Israel. Look at verse 12. Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. The Syrian king is told that the people of Israel have a secret weapon, and that weapon is a prophet that can see their plans. And so essentially, their plan is to go grab him, to go take him. Let's go take out the single man, that one man, and here comes an entire army against him. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that, that you were a single person against an entire army. Now, the Hebrew text is going to call this individual the king of Aram. The King James is going to say Syria. So if I ever say the Arameans, just know I'm talking about the Syrians, potato, potato. But in verse 8, we read that the king of Aram, or the king of Syria, wars against Israel, or warred against Israel. And so they sent their forces down to Dothan to capture Elisha. Why? Because they know he's a secret weapon. Now, that place where they go to send him to capture Elisha is the same place, we believe it's Tel Dothan, it's the same place where Joseph was sold into Egypt in Genesis thirty-seven seventeen. So this place, uh, Dothan is how it is read in the, in the Hebrew, is mentioned twice in the Bible, with Joseph and here. And so as they come there, Elisha prays, and there's this individual that's with Elisha, and he's so stressed, the Syrians are coming. And we read in verse 17 that Elisha prayed, Lord, I pray thee, 
open his eyes, meaning the servant that is with Elisha, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And so what we see in verse 17 is this image of spiritual forces that are with the Israelites to defend them against their enemies that can't be seen with human eyes. Verse 17 is used so much in conference to talk about the power of God that is with those that believe in God, that follow his commandments, and yet we cannot see these forces. Elder Maxwell said this, Uncertainty as to the world conditions does not justify moral uncertainty, and distracting churn will not cover our sins nor dim God's all-seeing eye. Furthermore, military victories are no substitute for winning our individual wars for self-control, nor do the raging human hatreds lessen God's perfect and redeeming love for all his children. Likewise, the obscuring mists of the moment cannot change the reality that Christ is the light of the world. And so then he says, let us be like the young man with Elijah on the mount, At first intimidated by the surrounding enemy, the young man's eyes were opened, and he saw horses and chariots of fire, verifying, quote, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. Brothers and sisters, the spiritual arithmetic has not changed. I really like that. I like where Elder Maxwell takes this story from antiquity, and he says, hey, it's the same story today. And so what happens? He prays to the Lord, smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. That phrase, where they're smitten with blindness, literally it says, strike this nation with blinding light, 2 Kings 6.18. And we put this in the show notes, but just know that that phrase, where they're smitten with blindness, is the same phrase, the same divine light that blinded the enemies of the Lord at Sodom in Genesis 19.11. It was used to disable the mob of would-be attackers. And the connection between these two groups cannot be missed. And it's that same blindness that Joseph Smith used to escape some of the people trying to steal the plates away from him. There's a story in church history where Joseph prayed that they would be struck with blindness and they just didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize that it was Joseph and he got away with the plates. And so look what happens. So after they're blinded, verse 19 says, Elisha said unto them, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So, I just keep hearing Obi-Wan Kenobi say, these are not the droids you're looking for. Yes, exactly. He's using, we can call it a Jedi mind trick. He takes these people that are his attackers and he leads them to Samaria. Now they're blinded, so they have to follow his voice. And it says in verse 20, that when they came to Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes. And they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said to Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? So the king of Israel is acknowledging Elisha's authority. And he says, should I smite them? And Elijah says, no. Look what it says in verse 22. Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And verse 23 says that the king gave him even greater food. And then it says, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. He sent them away in peace. Now that doesn't happen a lot in the Old Testament. These men that came to take Elisha are sent home in peace. And then we read verse 24. 
And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. So there's a disjunction here in verse 24. I just want to draw this out. If you look in 23, it says that the people of Syria came no more to the land of Israel. But in verse 24, what do they do? They come in. And so in biblical scholarship, they see this as a seam in the text. And there are different ways to interpret this. But one of the ways they interpret this is that these are oral stories that over time were textualized and they're stitched together. So if you read verse 23 and you read verse 24, they don't make sense. But they do make sense if we read this as this is a story from another time. We don't know the chronology and it's stitched in this account. So from verse 24 of chapter 6 you got to kind of read this all the way to the end of chapter six, and it carries over into the rest of chapter seven. So this is another account after verse 23 of a, a war between the people of Syria and the people of Israel. And we read that it's basically that your two worst nightmares in the ancient Near East. You're being besieged by an enemy and you have a famine. I mean, that's the worst parade of horribles because you're either going to be killed by the sword or you're going to be killed by starvation. And so that's what's going on here. And we read that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver. That's verse 25 of chapter six. And then we have this woman who cries out and look what it says. It says that she cries out saying, help, O Lord, my King. Save my Lord, O King. I kind of see this with the Hosanna shout where she's crying out, Oh, save me, my Lord. And essentially, this king is in this position of like, what do I do? How do I help them? And it's very difficult reading of what's happening at the end of this chapter. But this is fulfilling the curses that are laid out in Deuteronomy 28. If you read the curses, and they're, they're pretty brutal in Deuteronomy 28, the rest of 2 Kings 6 is fulfilling those. And some people look at this and say, this is the author showing how they've strayed so far that the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are applying to them. Now, remember, the kings of Israel are depicted as bad. And so Elisha is kind of like this one light. And so the seventh chapter is where Elisha prophesies incredible plenty in Samaria. And the way they're able to get plenty, look in verse 1, he says, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And that's a really good price for food, and yet they have this famine. So how are they able to have this fulfilled? Well, the Syrian army that's camped around the city leaves. And so verse 3 tells us that there are these four lepers in the gate. Remember, these are outcasts, and they basically come up with a plan. They say, listen, we either die of starvation or we die of the swords of the enemy. Either way, we're going to die. So let's go out to see what the, what's going on with the enemy. Maybe they'll feed us. So they go out to the camp, and when they see that the Syrians have fled, they come back and tell the news to the servants of the king, and then the servants of the king go and tell the king. And then the king, finding the report of the lepers to be true, he takes the spoil from the Aramean camp or from the Syrian camp. That's 2 Kings 7, 12 through 16. And so the man who would not believe the prophecy of Elisha regarding plenty having charge of the gate is trampled and killed. That's verses 17 through 20. We think he's trampled and killed because when the people hear that there's food, they just kind of rush out and go get the food and he's trampled. And so this is a great story where Elisha's prophecy comes to pass, that they're able to eat. Now, to me, this kind of reminds me of Heber C. Kimball. You see, when the saints came to Salt Lake in 1847, we didn't have a lot of food left. It took a lot for us to get here. We plant our wheat, but 
we kind of spent a couple of years not having the best conditions when it comes to food. And Heber C. Kimball stands up in conference and he says that states' goods will be able to be bought for a price cheaper than it is back east. It's this incredible prophecy. When he sits down after he gives this prophecy in conference, Brigham Young says, what was that? And Heber C. Kimball says, I don't know. That's what the Spirit told me to say, so I said it. Well, historically, what's interesting is in 1849, some individuals in California discover gold and word gets out to the Eastern papers and people from the East come West and they don't have Brigham Young leading them. And so they don't necessarily pack all the right stuff. And as they're coming West, some of them pack too much stuff. Some of them don't pack the right things. And as they come, they're willing to pay almost any price to have the right things. And they have things to trade with. And it's through this great migration of people coming from the Eastern states to California to seek gold that many of them are able to bring goods that are affordable for the saints. So these fulfill the prophecy of Heber C. Kimball, where he says that states' goods will be able to be purchased at reasonable prices, and many things come into the hands of the saints as a result of this prophecy. Now, the prophecies aren't identical, but essentially the outcome is the same, that the Lord who is in heaven takes care of his people. And so this worst parade of horribles from the perspective of the people that live in the ancient Near East, a siege and famine is fixed. And it's fixed through, in my take, the way I read it is through listening to Elisha. It's worth reading the last verse of First Nephi chapter 1. And I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. The Book of Mormon begins with that prophecy that if you will obey covenants, if you will obey prophets and prophetic counsel, tender mercies will bring blessings into your life, even when you don't see them as even possibilities. Axes will float. Food will multiply. The lost will be found. God will be with you. Let him into your life. Let God prevail. Let prophets counsel come into your life, and all of these things shall come. Hugh Nibley once said that time always vindicates the prophets, but sometimes it's a long time. And so 2 Kings 9 is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah gave way back in 1 Kings 21, that Jezebel, who sought the blood of the prophets, remember Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, king of Israel in the north. This is the story of her death. And it's, it's pretty intense. But this chapter is also an illustration of that idea, that and time I, vindicates the prophets. And I'm sure there was a time where Jezebel jumped up and dead, said, neener, 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 your words are empty. I'm still alive. No dog has eaten me. And there was a moment where evil was feeling like they were victorious over a prophet. It's kind of like Revelation 11, where the two witnesses are in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden they fall, and all of all of their enemies start jumping up and cheering as if evil has won, and evil has won its day. And then all of a sudden the two witnesses stand back up. Time will always vindicate a prophet. And I think that's the message of Elijah and Elisha. It's the message of the Old Testament. Let these authorized servants into your life. Let their counsel prevail in your life. Dip seven times in the river. 
Don't get out after one dip if you don't see the blessing come. Don't get out after six dips because the blessing hasn't come. You stay faithful. And in the end, you will see that the time will vindicate the prophets and that letting them into your life will bring the blessings that God has promised. Of that, we stand as witnesses that when we let God prevail in our lives, we will prevail over our enemies. And always remember that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And with that, we thank you for your time. Next time, we will cover 2 Kings 17 through 25. Which is the northern tribes being taken captive and Hezekiah standing against Syria. Thanks for listening. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.